This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, what's up? Hello. It's Thursday. It's Coindesk TV. It's The Hash. I'm Zach Seward. I got Jensen Assey, Christy Harkin, and Will Foxley here today on the show. We're going to get you up to speed on what is going on in the world of crypto and culture. And I think Will is leading us off today with a bit of news about FTX US. Will? I am. Call me Polymarket. I made a prediction and it came true. FTX is moving into the stock world with their Chicago-based firm FTX US. Uh, they're rolling out a limited functionality for a few test users on Thursday. And then they'll move into the wider stock market with more users, hopefully pretty soon here. We talked about this, I think, last week on the show, or maybe it was earlier this week, about how FTX is moving into the traditional finance world. Obviously, uh, SBF made an investment in Robinhood last week for about 7.6% stake of their firm, which was notable not only that crypto money was moving into TradFi, but that he was taking a stake in what could be seen as a rival company to FTX. Zach, I want to get your take on this story. I think it gives a lot of perspective for how big exchanges are thinking about the runways. Yeah, we're going to talk about another type of merge after this. But the merge I want to talk about here is the merge of traditional finance and crypto finance. Whether it's eToro sort of starting in the traditional equities world and then going to crypto, or crypto exchanges starting in the crypto world and going to the equity world, it seems like everyone is sort of coalescing in the middle, trying to offer it all to their clients in one handy one-stop shop for people to deal with their financial future. So it's interesting to see this regressing to the mean, I guess, in terms of the things that these companies can offer to their customers. And I think we're just going to see more and more of that over time. There could become a time when the idea of a crypto exchange is a bit passe because it's been sort of co-opted and integrated into the mainstream financial infrastructure of the world. And I think we're starting to kind of see that, you know, with Robinhood getting more and more involved in the crypto trading space and now FTX US in its very first baby steps rolling out stock trading to its US customers. So interesting to see this combining of worlds, this merge is something that I think we'll see more of over the course of this year and potentially next. But I will toss it to Jen. We talk so much about accessibility when it comes to crypto, but a lot of those same issues exist in the traditional financial markets. And products like Robinhood in the US and Wealthsimple here in Canada have made those traditional financial markets, I think, more accessible to this mainstream audience that we talk about so often. And I think over COVID, there are a lot of people who started dabbling in crypto who have never dabbled in the traditional financial market because of some of those accessibility issues. And so I think it's really smart for FTX US to be going on this almost, it feels like a backwards route, but it makes so much sense. There are so many people who have never, ever dealt with traditional stocks who are getting used to crypto and would love access to that market. And so I think it's super smart and a super smart way to diversify their business, especially as the crypto markets are seeing a bit of a downturn. But Christy, what did you think? Yeah, that last point was pretty much what I was going to bring up is, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to diversify from crypto into mainstream stocks simply because we are heading into, if not already, already in a bear market and things are going to get rough and scary for crypto traders. And so by diversifying and bringing in the things that, you know, as Jen says, maybe the newbies to trading in general might not have considered doing, which is 
normal stocks like mom and dad always did, it gives them a little bit of exposure to that. And it allows FTX to sort of weather the bear market. Well, one little nugget in here that I thought was interesting is that FTX will allow you to fund your account with USDC. So there is a little bit of a tie over and it's a tie over a lot of people have been waiting for. Stable coins have been like the thing that a lot of people have been waiting for uh, traditional markets to start grappling with and understanding and move past like the regulatory issues. And now it's happening with this tie over where you can fund with USDC, you can fund from crypto right into a stock portfolio. Uh, I think that is going to take off in a few different ways. And I'm excited to see uh, them do it and then other companies adopt that as well and then see where proliferation of stable coins goes into traditional finance as well. But Zach, I'll give it to you. Yeah, I'll just do one last note on sort of the expanding FTX US empire, right? They're putting down major roots in Chicago. They recently cut the ribbon on a new headquarters, made some nice charitable contributions to, I think, a food bank in the region. So they are indeed sort of uh, getting bigger and bigger and expanding their presence in the U.S. market, specifically out of Chicago, which has always been a hotbed of commodities trading. So it's interesting to see them sort of prop up that local scene, that regional crypto scene. And it seems to be attracting a bit more momentum, the Chicago scene in the crypto world these days because of FTX U.S.'s presence. All right, let's change gears. Let's just change gears. Let's change gears. Let's talk about the merge. Let's talk about another merge. Alluded to this a minute ago, but we're going to talk about the Ethereum 2.0 testnet merge it's coming ah it's happening potentially in june with a mainnet rollout slated for later this year but of course we've heard this time and time again and there's always been a number of delays many many delays so i'm going to put the question bluntly to christy is this really going to happen in june well, there's no reason to think that a testnet merge can't happen in June. I mean, all we're doing here is before people get too super duper excited, this is a testnet. And what we're doing is we are practicing the merge on a testnet. The more testnet, so this one is the Robston, and then there's going to be the girly one, testnet. And we've been practicing with shadow forks, and we've been practicing with all these other things. And this is one more test that they're going to run through. And it's scheduled to happen at the beginning of June. No reason to see why not. And if things go sideways, hey, at least it isn't the real merge, which will happen sometime. So if this goes well, then that sometime is more likely to happen sooner than later. If things go wonky, then yeah, it's going to take a little while. So yeah, Jen, I saw your hand go up. Well, Christy, doesn't practice make perfect? Don't we want to see practice happening before the actual Absolutely. thing. <laughs> <laughs> Better to have things break on a test than break for reals. It's true. When I read the story, I thought of the office scene where they have the fire drill and they say, it's happening, it's happening. What's the procedure? And they're, they're practicing what they would do in a fire drill. I must say, as much as there have been so many delays, I think the communication has been great. We see so many projects in this space have really ambitious milestones. They don't meet those milestones, which is okay when you're building. But the communication, I feel like when it comes to this merge has been really awesome. I know we saw, I think it was last month, Ethereum developer Tim Baiko said that the merge wouldn't be ready until a few months after June. And this makes sense. If it goes well, I see that timeline happening. So I'm crossing my fingers for this fire drill. But Zach, I'll pass it up to you. I just wanted to make an Allen Iverson joke that we're talking about practice, but I see Will probably has a more incisive commentary to offer. And he's also a big basketball fan, so I'm going to pass it right to him. I love that. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. And I just love Jen's enthusiasm. She's always so optimistic and so nice to everybody. 
everyone else is like, win merge. Like this should have happened three years ago. But you know, you're just like, oh, you guys are doing great. It has been good. <laughs> yeah. Good job, guys. <laughs> oh, it's really nice of you. And the thing is that what I like about this communication, say, as opposed to Kurt Cardano, most of these are actually meaningful advancements. It's not that they're communicating every tiny little, ooh, look, I just did a little tweak here and let's all get excited. These are actually milestones that are set on a roadmap. You can check the roadmap on GitHub and they actually make sense to kind of make a big deal out of it. So yeah, go ahead, Will. Totally. The one thing I'd like to bring up and get you guys' opinions on is like, like the existential problem with the merge. If it doesn't work out and the need for all these test nets, the reason why they're doing all these shadow forks and shadow chain changes. I don't know what they're doing. They're, they're making a lot of changes before ETH2 in order to prep for it. Because if it doesn't work and if they're, the transition breaks somehow, you could have a really bad world where we're in a bear market already and then you have the second largest chain have a very consequential break. And I don't know what that break would look like. Maybe it's just like the chain stops for a little bit, maybe a few hours, maybe even a few minutes. Maybe the chain completely breaks. Like that might be called FUD, but I think you do have to grapple with the fact that this is the biggest change to the second largest chain ever. So I'd like to get your take on that, Zach, and maybe some thoughts from you, Christy, on it. I mean, I think it speaks to the degree of caution that they are undertaking here. You know, these conversations emerged when Ethereum was a much smaller concern, right? And now I think it's a bigger deal. And so you hear developers speaking at ETH Denver, for instance, about, again, the level of caution that they're using when approaching this major switch over from proof of work to proof of stake. I think people want things done yesterday, right? They want the new, they want the shiny. And I think, you know, the developers behind the scenes here, very mindful of the thing that Will just said. This is a chain that is securing a ton of value at this point in time. And the worst possible thing to happen would be to switch over prematurely and again, compromise or somehow rupture what is going on in the world of Ethereum, which is a lot. But I'll talk to Chrissy for her thoughts. That's pretty much the bread and butter of the argument there. And I think that they are being very, very careful. And for all of the anticipation that this has, and, and perhaps a little bit of impatience, like Bitcoin, you're not going to be making massive changes to a protocol with a ton of value on it without knowing for damn sure that this is what you want to be doing and this is how it's going to happen. And having test after test like this is really the only way to go about doing it. Is that to say there isn't going to be something happening later? No, but they've eliminated so many pitfalls along the way that one can hope that anything that might not be 100%, I mean, I think we're going to maybe see the odd node not syncing or a particular problem with a client, but there are several clients and that's why client diversity is so important. So if something breaks with one client, we've got all the other clients to work with. They've got stop gaps built in and they've got tripwires set so that things, if things go wrong, it hopefully will only affect a part of the network and then everything else can get up to speed. Jen? I think that this also speaks to that $500,000 bug bounty. This is a massive bug bounty that I think is a lot larger than some that we've seen in the past that we've heard about before things actually go wrong. And so it feels like they're thinking about this in a very robust way. Well, Zach pretty much summed up this whole story before. So I don't even know why we're talking about it, but let's get into it. SEC Chair Gary Gensler says he needs more money. He told the U.S. House when he asked for an increased budget to protect crypto investors. So this happened on Wednesday. He referenced UST when he told lawmakers that there was one crypto complex that went from 50 billion in value to zero in the last three 
weeks. He went on to say that the public is not protected. So who could have predicted this? I think everyone on the show, the SEC previously had 50 people as part of their 1300 people task force committed to crypto. I think they've recently added 20 to that. And now they are asking for more money to protect those regular people on the street. Will, I'm going to kick this one off to you. Do you think the SEC needs more money to protect us little people just trying to do something cool here with crypto? Well, first off, Chairman Gary Gensler, get your facts straight. Check CoinGecko, 40 million market cap, not 50 million market cap. Uh So let's get that straight. Did go zero though, so he is correct there. This isn't super surprising at all to see him asking for for more money. And we had that headline, you know, two weeks ago. He asked for 20 more people were joining uh, the crypto enforcement division. And a lot of people were not shocked to see that. Uh, Interesting thing for me in this story was the little nugget about Bitcoin and how the CFTC was going to oversee that token. And it didn't mention any others, but it did leave room for other tokens to be monitored by the CFTC. There's a lot of tokens out there that do fall under the Howey test that would therefore fall under the SEC's purview. And he needs money to be able to get that done. So that's not surprising at all. I think crypto devs out there are not going to be happy, though. And the crypto ecosystem is not going to be happy. Like enforcement on these things is something that they do not like, they do not want to see. Doesn't mean it's not necessary or we can get to the morality of the argument sometime else. But there's going to be a lot of unhappy people in crypto right now. And this is someone who came into office with some cheerleading, right, from the crypto guys. They were like, oh, this guy's great. Like he used to teach Bitcoin courses at MIT. We should love him. And now he's asking for expanded resources to be able to track down ICU entrepreneurs or whatever you want to term them. Zach, I'll give it to you. Yeah, UST as a big cudgel is not going to go away. If UST was useful for anything, it is as a big stick for people in offices such as Gary Gensler's to advocate for more regulation and more protection. You know, I think in times of crash, there are people who are saying, you know, I, you know, we are looking out for the small guy. There needs to be some more consumer protections. Generally, the space is pretty opposed to that, but also the space hasn't done the best job self-regulating itself. And UST, Terra, Luna was a prime example of that, right? And now you have plenty of testimony, you know, $10 billion off here, there, no big deal. But you have testimony suggesting that, hey, the answer is more regulation, more consumer protection, or else we're going to see all these sad stories of people losing their entire life savings, just like we did last week. So that sticking, that talking point, I think, is going to stick around for a while, even if uh, Luna doesn't find its footing through whatever revival plan is being proposed or whatever hard fork or whatever is going to happen there. Again, that talking point for regulators the world over, I think it's going to be here for a while. Jen, tossing it to you. Yeah, Zach, I think you're completely right. And Will, I was one of the cheerleaders. This is so sad how quickly my tune has changed. I was excited for Gary Gensler to take office and it has not been good for the industry. So this was a funny part of the article for me. He, he said that any exchange that handles trading in any form of security, so that's again, if we're looking at the Howey test, if you have a token on your exchange that, that could be considered a security, you should come in and register with us as a national exchange. He said, you know, we always say, come in and work with us. And we've seen in the past exchanges who try to come in and work with them have said very publicly, it's the process is not straightforward, it's unclear. And sometimes at the end of the day, you end up getting sued by the SEC when you were just trying to work with them. Will, I think I saw your hand pop up. Yeah, I, I think a lot of Bitcoin proponents would actually be pretty favorable towards what Gary Gensler is doing right now, which shows you there's a big split within the industry. There's a large Bitcoin crowd that actually wants 
the SEC to go after a lot of these tokens because they want Bitcoin to be number one or whatever their their arguments for it are. And I, I do think that there are some people who are going to be pretty happy he went to Capitol Hill and asked for more money for this instance. And I'm curious to see how that splits out into the crypto culture uh, because there is like this Bitcoin versus all these other tokens idea. And Gary Gensler's recent moves have suggested that he's more in the Bitcoin trade, uh, Bitcoin train rather. He's, he's willing to support it. He's not going to try to regulate it. But he is going to regulate all the ICO crowd and all the other tokens out there. Chris, you get your last take though. I think for me, it's more of a question. I'm not entirely sure. And I think part of this is simply because I'm not 100% up on my scope of the SEC. You know, it's not uh, being in Canada. I'm not really, uh, I don't think about them as much as say you guys do. But having said that, I'm not sure how much the SEC is able to actually protect consumers when the fault of the token itself is often in the code or it's in something that, I mean, the average SEC regulator type isn't going to be able to suss out. Everything works until it doesn't. (laughs) And that's kind of what happened with UST is it worked until it didn't. So even when you go through all of those hoops and you say, you know, oh, this is what our token is going to do. And this is where it fits into the Howey test and yada, yada. At the end of the day, we're dealing with code that may or may not screw up. They're not doing a million test nets before they go and get themselves approved. Oversight is a good thing in many ways, but unless they're bringing a bunch of, uh, I don't know, smart contract auditors, we might, and even the smart contract auditors Maybe don't catch everything. For I don't know. How much protection can the SEC actually provide when it comes to crypto? More like NGMI, <laughs> am I right? <laughs> anyway, Christy, take it away. You got the last story of the day. Yeah. So... I think the, it might have even been the last time or two times ago when I was on the hash, we talked about a mining moratorium that has sort of stalled in New York, that there was a two-year ban proposed that got sort of held up in New York, where the Senate Environmental Committee is looking at a bill that's going to have a moratorium on proof-of-work mining, new proof-of-work mining development in New York. And that's going to be sitting there for a while. But now we have an article that is talking about the fallout from the Senate even considering this bill. We're talking to uh, different mining companies who are like, yeah, heck, we don't know what's coming down the pipe. We're not going to expand in New York because we don't know where it's all going to go. They're looking at Texas, for example. Texas has a much more friendly regulation. I mean, speaking of regulation. So it is already having an effect on the way that the mining business is potentially going to operate in the future, even though we don't have a definite answer or even an an indication that it's going to even get discussed in the near future. So we're starting to see that fallout. And I would like to know, actually, I'm just going to go to Will as our, our resident mining guy. Live from Austin. True. I do work for a mining company, so disclosure there. I was talking about this actually this morning as well. And I think the most interesting counterpoint for some data for this story is the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance came out with a new map yesterday showing where Bitcoin mining is in the United States and globally. They found that Georgia actually has the most Bitcoin mining, followed by New York, Kentucky, 
and then Texas. A few other states up there, they're all kind of vying against each other. And anytime you do a snapshot, you'll get like similar percentages. But Georgia is far and away the leader with about 30% of Bitcoins uh, of the United States hash rate from this one snapshot. So what does that tell you? Well, Bitcoin mining can exist in a lot of different places in the United States, even places you don't even hear about in headlines like Georgia, like Kentucky. And I think a lot of Bitcoin miners will go there. New York is unstable politically and people are not sure they want to continue building there because if you're going to build a mining operation, it needs to last probably about five years. Uh, it seems very similar to what the European Union is doing. They're reading into a lot of these ESG takes, these lot of ESG policies, and they're going to push Bitcoin mining outside of it. There is some interesting legislation on the ground and some lobbying efforts by the mining industry and by like the crypto industry really at this point is getting behind it. And we'll see if there's some pushback, but I think miners are looking at their capital and being like, hey, we should probably just go to fair weather. Jen, I'll throw it down to you for your take. I had a bunch of questions. You've kind of just answered some. There was a quote in the article. It said, it says that the bill's focusing on fossil fuels and people in the industry are worried that it will extend into renewable energy. And that is kind of counterintuitive for me to read because I think that all of these new regulations are coming into place because we want people to move towards renewable energy. So as someone in the mining space, like, is that an actual fear? Yeah, and it comes back to that proof of work versus proof of stake thing, right? It's always better to use less energy within most people's minds than use energy at all, whether it be renewable or based on fossil fuels. So a lot of people look at Bitcoin mining and be like, oh, you can swap to renewables, but at the same time, you're using energy and that's driving up the cost of energy for other people you're still using it in the first place, why not swap to proof of stake? And obviously there's a lot of arguments against proof of stake for proof of stake, and we don't need to get into that here. But it's not uncommon to see politicians latch onto the idea that it doesn't matter what energy source you're using, it's too energy intensive in the first place, so we're going to reject it. Bitcoin miners obviously don't like that take, and a lot of Bitcoiners hate that take as well. But it's something that's very common. I think we're going to see more of it going forward as well. How that was that pretty good? A good answer. That was good. And then my second question is probably silly, but I just have to ask it. Could we see Bitcoin mining in New York go underground like we saw it go underground in China? Mm, maybe. I don't know. Probably <laughs> oh, okay. a little bit. All right. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I don't know if you can see the the underground big scale mining, but I mean, there's some pretty good advancement in home mining. And there's that lovely box that you can put your miner in now. And it's super duper quiet. And it just looks like your air conditioner. And who's to say, right? <laughs> if the home mining uh, industry takes off, we could still see some underground hash power in New York. Also, Zach, literally underground. I used to report <laughs> in Rochester, New York, uh, on a public radio project called the Innovation Trail. Shout out NPR. What's up? And oh, back nice. in my day, about 10 years ago, there was these underground salt caverns that were unused and they were trying to employ them for various green energy projects. So if those projects wow. fell through, literally underground Bitcoin mines, upstate New York, check that out. All right. That's it. That's all I got. That's it for the show today on a complete, complete tangent. That was fantastic. Good times. All right. We called the hash for a reason. We talk about crypto culture everything in between, even abandoned salt mines. I'm Zach. <laughs> we got Jen. We got Christy today. Christy, thanks for being here. We got Will. We'll be back tomorrow for the Friday show. This was the Friday light show on a Thursday. Check out the podcast if you haven't already. You can listen to us, but you can't see our wonderful fits. So just heads up. 
Check it out, though. It's on the Coindesk Podcast Network. A lot of great stuff on there. All right. That's it for the day. We hope you're having a good one, and we wish you well for the remainder. We will talk to you in 23 hours and 30 minutes. All right. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. 